Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, today I interviewed Wiza Jalakasi. Wiza has a very interesting story to tell, and I got in touch with him through a previous guest. And Wiza knows the technology, innovation, and business scene in Africa like crazy. He's the one to talk to. And I talked to him, and this conversation is really interesting. There's a lot of insight in here about a lot of different stuff. And I'm really honored and proud to publish this one. I've been waiting to publish it for a while because this is the first one which really got me onto this whole there's something going on outside. And there's a lot of hype about it as well. And I don't want to contribute to that hype, but this is a question. How do you tell hype from reality? It's like with hindsight, that's the only way you can really figure it out. I think it's impossible to find to to figure out whether you're being hyped or not in the in the in the current moment. So there's a lot happening around the world and what I want to do is get as much as possible burn through the hype and get the real difficult situation. And so for this from this episode I learned a lot particularly about that what are the things that the African tech scene needs to develop in order to make this a sustainable long-term thing and its infrastructure. And what is the first infrastructure for having commerce be channeled through the internet? Finance. Uh, and so, and that's what I'm discovering about also Brazil, Latin America. Uh, so we got finance and then we got e-commerce. Uh, those are the big things, you know, and if you think about it, like in the United States in 1990, the first company that I ever invested in was Webvan. Uh, so I learned an important lesson on that one. Uh, but everybody's like, this internet thing is going to revolutionize e-commerce in the 90s. I was here, it, it, like it all happened around me, and, and I got caught up in the hype there. Uh, and then there's e-commerce, and it's going to take over the world. But they were wrong about it, although they weren't because Amazon got started at that time. Um, right around that before the before the tech bubble the first tech bubble and then you know look at 2007 2007 you really start to see e-commerce as a way of life in the United States that's going to happen to other countries and it's going to happen fast uh, much faster than it happened in the US I believe that's that's something I'd be willing to stake money on and so Wiza has a really really important insightful understanding of what's going on in Africa um, and I'll let him explain more. I've gone on too long already. But if you do enjoy this episode, please find us on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom, hitting the subscribe button. Um, if you if you really like it, then please go ahead and give a review. Uh, you can also find me at Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III. I'm also starting to publish episodes on a separate account at Get Crazy Wisdom. Uh, that's another handle on Twitter that you can find all the episodes I'm going to publish. I'm going to publish all of them there. Um, and then if you speak Spanish and you want to understand what's going on in Latin America and Spain um, and eventually in, in Brazil, although I'll create a separate channel for that, I am starting to tweet about those episodes at um, Crazy Wisdom ESP for Espanol. So Crazy Wisdom ESP uh, on Twitter. And hope you enjoy this episode. Please let me know what you think. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Wiza Jalakasi. Uh, he does international business development uh, and mostly focused on Africa. Uh, and he sell, helps specialize in the setup and operation of high-performance technology startups. 
uh, and he's got experience spanning 10 years in 16 African countries. Um, and I'm really excited to have you on. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much, um, Stuart. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here. Um, looking forward to engaging and seeing what we can share. Cool. I, the reason we got connected was a previous guest and friend, Andreas Klinger, uh, responded to my post about Nigeria. And I think I, it was my post might have been inflammatory uh, in a way that wasn't meant to be because I realized that I've spent so much time abroad that I, I realized that most of the time uh, countries have a false representation outside of those countries. It's like a branding problem that each country has when it's like, and so I made a, I made a tweet about Nigeria that most people in Silicon Valley and the United States think of Nigeria as a place full of scammers because they've had so many emails that have come from, from Nigeria um, uh, with scam. And it's a, it's a trope inside of the uh, of United States culture. Um, and, uh, and, but I see you know, Nigeria as a huge country with English-speaking population, educa highly educated, highly creative. Um, and uh, I wanted to understand more and I know you're not Nigerian, but you have experience all over Africa, uh, and I'd love to get your opinion on it and get your thoughts on it. Yeah, great. Um, I, I think I don't think it was really inflammatory, um, but you kind of touched on a sensitive issue that um, the ecosystem is trying to collaborate around getting around the branding issue. Um, there is some merit to that um, point to say that quite a bit of 419 fraud occurs. Um, from Nigeria, but I think like um, the bigger picture would be how can we as positive ecosystem actors start telling our side of the story and what we're doing about it. Mm. And you know, um, in in a small way, I guess that this this might help me contribute to that. So yeah, um, I'm from Malawi, but I've spent quite a bit of time um, in East and West Africa. Mm. I actually just got back from a trip in Lagos uh, a few weeks ago, and. One of the things that really um, jumped at me was the intensity of the energy that people have there. So Nigeria is a massive country, the biggest one by population size on the continent, um, in between 160 to 200 million people, depending on who you ask. A lot of the data around population is actually disputed. Um, the government is present, but not functional in a way that people would be used to. So subsequently, um, Nigerians have had to create their own infrastructure and solutions. And this starts at a very um, base level. I'm talking about like electricity access. Um, I was reading in Quartz just um, two days ago that like Nigeria is the number one importer of generators on the continent. Mm. And um, it's a, it's a normal day-to-day -day thing. Like you must have your generator to provide your power. You must have alternative water sources because like the, the utility for water is, is gonna let you down. And like, this is the environment that people have um, grown up in. They've, they've, they've like known challenge from day one and they have known how to live around it. So um, you see this manifest in the way that Nigerians build their businesses, even across the continent. A lot of people from other countries would 
find them to be very aggressive um, in their mannerisms. Um, but I think it's just a, it's a consequence of like coming from that sort of environment. On the plus side, like it, it, it does incredible things for your work ethic and your hustle and your resilience. So it's no surprise at all that like Nigerian companies are amongst the most successful in the ecosystem. Um, y Combinator released their list of 150 most valuable companies. Um, a Nigerian company called Flutterwave is like number 97 or number 98, um, valued over $150 million, um, coming ahead of like some interesting U.S. startups like Lambda School, you know. Mm. So mm. it's, yeah, like that's, that's, that's not a stat that people know, but we could make more noise about. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a unique country. It has unique circumstances and Nigerians are trying to get out desperately, trying to build a better future for themselves. And sometimes that manifests in negative ways, like um, the origin of 419 fraud was really because um, people didn't have opportunities. Um, so when the internet came around, connectivity came around, Nigerians being the very entrepreneurial and creative people that they are as a consequence of growing up in this environment, you're just trying to get out, you're trying to get what you can and it's about survival. Um, unfortunately, it, it has now become more organized in the sense that um, they have perfected, some, some people have perfected um, this type of internet fraud and they have managed to um, commercialize it in a very systematic way that it's now becoming organized crime. But I think it's a very small subset um, of a population that has put a very wide megaphone online. Um, but then there's like a whole bunch of other people who are just like quietly sitting down, getting things done, but not making a lot of noise about it. And if you don't, I think I see the most like online activity on Twitter. If you're not following certain people on Twitter um, in regards to the African tech ecosystem, the whole thing will pass you by. And mainstream media doesn't do much to really investigate what's going on. But like um, more recently, we see a trend where um, African founders and African technology entrepreneurs are telling more of their own stories. So who, I think it would change. Who who should I follow on on Twitter uh, right now to 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 get that story? Right. So um, a personal favorite is Asamota Victor Asamota at Asamota A S E M O T A. Um, he generally has a pretty broad perspective on what's going on in the ecosystem. Um, he's been in the tech industry for the last 15, 20 years. Um, he's done a couple of investments as well. Um, I really like the founders of Paystack, um, the Stripe portfolio company. So that's Shola Scholzman. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna like, drop a bunch of names. Um, Oluk Benga, GB, the, the founder of Flutterwave, the, the company that I mentioned. His handle is techprod underscore arc. Um, and then another handle, UberJJ, he's a product manager at um, Paystack. But he releases every 10 days uh, an interesting newsletter called Decode Fintech. And it contains like the highest quality news about what's going on in financial services across the continent. Um, and then, yeah, those are the names that come to mind. Um, Olumide Olusanya from Nigeria as well. Let me try and get his handle. Hmm. Um, Doc Olumide. That's really cool. I, I He's followed a few of them. Go for it. Yeah, yeah Doc, Doc Olumide. So Doc as in doctor, O-L-U-M-I-D-E. And um, a really brilliant 
I, I guess he's, he's an author. He's, a, he's called Osarimen Osamui. Um, his handle is squared. That's spelled S-K-W-E-I-R-D. And he writes a publication called The Subtext. Now, The Subtext is, I would say, the number one um, resource that I use when I want to better understand how to think about certain trends in the industry. Um, and, you know, I'll let you guys check that out. And I think his work will speak for itself. But, yeah, that, those yeah, names cool. should, <laughs> yeah. I feel like that that was one of the most uh, signal-filled uh, things in terms of uh, what's going to lead to a greater understanding for me personally in, in terms of what's going on in Africa. Um, uh, and there's there's one point in particular, you because you you messaged me after we were setting this up, and you, you mentioned a really good point that kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier, which is that uh, there's this hustle that happens once uh, countries are starting to rise uh, and their institutions are totally set up and all this different stuff. Um, and it's unfair to compare it to places where that already happened. Because in the United States, that happened. We, we had a period where we had a whole bunch of hustlers. We had a whole bunch of, uh, and then we had the negative side of that too, that negative side of hustling that, that gets into the kind yeah. of, you know, almost evil type of stuff happening as well. But then there's a whole bunch of people who don't talk about it. Because I find generally a lot of the people doing the work, like you said, aren't really the self-promoters, um, which maybe they should be. Uh, but the, and and so it's, Really, I'd love to get more into that about your understanding of maybe Nigeria, but also in the greater African ecosystem of what is happening right now uh, in historical context. Yeah, okay, that's a great question. Um, so for me, uh, I think it really goes back to history in the last 100, 60 to 100 years ago. Um, a lot of African countries are new republics. So a lot of our countries, Malawi, Nigeria, Kenya, um, all the countries that I've lived in, all got their independence from um, British or French colonial um, administrations in the early 60s. Um, meaning to say that like my parents' generation is the basically first generation of people who understand what it's like to live in a democracy. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you what this means like in practice. Um, when I was growing up, my parents had envisioned that I would like probably be either a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant or some sort of professional, very like, like you know, very strict fields that um, you're expected to participate in because that's like, that's your window of opportunity. That's the only thing that you know. Um, I think that like, because of um, democracy coming to African countries around the 60s and that generation growing up in that environment, um, having children who are then like born into a very hyper-connected, mm. um, globalized world, um, had some interesting sort of interactions. Um, the internet made the world like super small. And for the first time, Africans um, had access to all of the world's information, all of the world's opportunities. Um, but then there were no like reference points for who we could look up to. Mm. So like, you know, um, I don't, I, I, I don't have like uh, inventors, technology inventors from a hundred or 50 years ago in Africa that I can look up to. I can only look up to people from the previous generation and that, that sort of environment makes it difficult for people to think creatively and to see the abundance in the world. So you find that a lot of African societies are structured around like a very repetitive and closed off 
um, way of life that isn't inherently bad, but um, in an increasingly globalized world, it helps to integrate more broadly with, with um, what's going on. Um, now, that being said, there are some like upsides. Um, um, one thing that I've noticed about like a lot of African cultures is that there's a lot of um, sense of community. So African countries actually rank um, lower on the individualism index of the geared Hofstede cultural dimensions. These are indices um, that are used to essentially quantify the psychological behavior of countries and all African countries like rank very lowly on individualism. And you see this happening, how you engage, how you interact, how business is done. Um, it's a very tight knit community, despite being a very large continent with people from all over. But like the African ecosystem is so um, cohesive in a way that, for example, the European ecosystem isn't. Again, as a consequence of um, this history and this this background of where we're coming from. Um, now, with that with that in mind, I think um, something that personally pains me and ails a lot of people living on the continent is that we have a systemic um, failure of leadership. Um, and the people that have been entrusted to run African democracies are usually uh, at the... Um, at the top of all of the negative stuff that's going on. So corruption, theft, mismanagement, all of these things. And it's easy to point a finger to say like, hey, we've entrusted these guys to lead us in the right direction, but they're not. But we also must remember that this is the first time that these people are getting access to certain types of resources. You can imagine for the last hundred years, you have been told by your colonial masters that your job is to farm and plow fields. Then all of a sudden, um, your colonial masters wake up one day and say like, okay, you guys are all free, like rule yourselves. Um, there's a lot of trauma. I think collective trauma and collective um, angst that probably we have, we have um, collected over the years and that's manifesting in the way the leaders treat the people now, there's a very strong sense of entitlement. Once an African president gets into power, they never want to leave. You know, um, um, Robert Mugabe, the president of Zimbabwe, was in power for, I don't know, 20, almost 30 years, I think, um, up until he was essentially forced to resign. Um, the president of Cameroon, I think, has been in power for, for over the last 18, 19 years. I don't know. And this is not even unusual you know it's like normalized um so technology businesses for the first time um due to the um the the, the power that they get to have um through scaling through technology and um, being able to generate certain revenues technology companies for the first time sort of have a voice and um, have legitimacy to have a seat at this table and to guide certain conversations um, in the right direction um, we do see like a lot of change, positive change, steps in the right direction. Um, for example, a few months ago, the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement was ratified by I think 50 or 50, 50 plus states of the 54 African states. And that's going to like grow, go a long way into continental integration, um, making air travel easier. It's still like extremely difficult to, to move knowledge resources across borders. Um, I studied in Kenya. I'm a Malawian. I studied in Kenya, but it took me like 
two years after graduating from a Kenyan university to get residence. And even then the residence is temporary and costs for $4,000 every two years. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a country whose GDP per capita is like just under $1,600, $1,700. So, you know, there's like a long way to go, but um, I, think, I think the internet has really helped to unify the continent, especially for my generation, because I realize now that like, um, there's really no such thing as other Africans. We're just all Africans. And that colonial history has negatively impacted us in that way. That's interesting because I was talking with somebody who was based in T- Tanzania uh, a few days ago, and they were talking about this interesting thing that seems to be happening, which you just kind of mentioned as well, which is that there is, there is national identity but that national identity is also, there's also an international identity of Pan-Africanism that's happening essentially. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I would call it like a, a Pan-African renaissance, right? So mm. I've, I've observed this every time I travel um, and, you know, conferences, you meet a bunch of people in tech and they're all having the same conversations. Um, firstly, about like ownership of stories. How can we um, tell our own stories, capture our heritage and make sure that, um, for the next generation, they get to know where we're coming from and why we're doing the things that we do. Um, that's one thing that really stands out, right? Because I, I, I was educated under the British education system in Malawi. So I can tell you everything about World War I, European history, World War II, American history, but I can't tell you anything about Malawian history. Um, and I'm Malawian, which is really unfortunate. So that's one thing that that theme that really, really resonates. And then secondly, it's about um, how can we create African wealth. Uh, unfortunately, right now, the vast majority of African economies are really dependent on donor funding, though I have some um, thoughts around that in, in the sense that even though like some 50 to $60 billion of um, foreign direct investment comes into Africa every year, almost 10x that amount is essentially lost through a very shady structures around certain industries particularly mining and agriculture, but you know, that, that's, a, that's an entirely different podcast episode. So, you know, we, we, we're coming to a point of realizing that we have resources and we're playing in a very um, globalized world where by aligning with certain actors, we can get certain things, aligning with other actors, we can get different types of things. And for the first time, I think the continent is coming together, putting their best heads together around how can we make an Africa that works for Africa despite where we're coming from and where we are now because clearly complaining and you know uh, leaving is not working um leaving is not a strategy i've had the opportunity to leave the continent several times but like for me it was like this is still home for me so yes some things aren't the best but um if we don't change it then no one will so we might as well get started and it it takes a quite a bit of time to come to that realization, to this point of acceptance that like, okay, things aren't great, but we need to start where we are. And I think more and more people um, in mass are coming to that point. So I, I would describe it as a Pan-African renaissance. That's really interesting because, uh, you know, the U- United States is a market which is totally mature in its internet connectivity and it's, uh, also, it's commercial internet connectivity where people are already spending money. They're used to spending money. Uh, and then, and also the economy has also reached, it might have reached its zenith uh, in the same way that Japan might have reached its zenith in the 80s. 
Um, and then, uh, so it, it, it's already kind of there. I mean, I'm not saying there's not opportunity. There's, court, there's tons of opportunity left in, in, in the United States, but, uh, but Africa is in this beginning where it's really, really interesting because the internet has already been developed. All these kind of models have been developed, but they haven't really been developed for countries in Africa. Uh, and the, that there's a whole bunch of people who are now about to come online, um, some of whom don't have a lot of disposable income, uh, but some of who, whom do have a, maybe let's talk about that. What is the situation of the growth of the middle class in Malawi and in, in Kenya and um, in, in Nigeria or uh, Ethiopia even? What, what is, is their middle class growing? Yeah, so... Huh. I would say it's in its infancy. Mm. There are some markets like South Africa, for example. South Africa, maybe Kenya, um, Egypt, Nigeria. There's a small middle class that's um, growing, um, but growing a bit slowly. But then there's like, um, there's a class just below the middle class, but not necessarily at the bottom of the pyramid. That is like huge everywhere and is growing much, much faster. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the one that people like really need to pay attention to. Um, people who are maybe primarily moving from rural to urban areas, moving from substance farming to like industry for the first time and, you know, having a bit of money and starting their own families and their own lives. Yes, they don't earn much, but then they earn something. And these are the people that um, I think make up the vast majority of the continent. In some countries like Malawi, for example, like 80% of the population is smallholder farmers. So, you know, Malawi has a long way to go. But like South Africa, today um, when I flew in uh, at the train station, I saw an ad for, for a local app called Luno. It's a cryptocurrency app. And it says it's trusted by 3 million users to buy uh, cryptocurrency. And I imagine most of those 3 million users are South African users. Um, South Africa's got a pretty sophisticated eco ecosystem um, can challenge most of those in Europe and in the West. And you see these like, you know, extremes, whereas Ethiopia doesn't have that at all. Like Ethiopia is using a different calendar. So it's actually 2012 in Ethiopia. Um, there's no interconnection of the banking infrastructure in Ethiopia. So you, you go to like a shopping mall and you'll see like 10 different ATMs from 10 different banks, like all next to each other because there's no interconnectivity um, between, between them. So, you know, I think you've got like extremes and it would be very um, inaccurate to apply a blanket statement to say, is there a middle class in Africa or not? It depends on where. Um, some countries don't, some countries do, but in the countries that do, there is a significant enough opportunity for, you know, digital services, e-commerce to, to, to get started, but still a long way to go um, to get to like, you know, that, that U.S. level of consumption. I think like a massive thing that most African countries don't have that the U.S. has around consumerism has been like a credit economy. So, you know, um, the, most African countries don't, don't even issue out like credit cards at scale. Um, it's only Kenya, South Africa, Egypt, um, Nigeria a little bit, I think that, that really use credit cards, but I would put card penetration um, at probably between three and 8% at, at the very most. Um, 
I've only seen South Africa as a country that has like a proper credit ecosystem where you can like get a house or get a car on credit, but the vast majority of African economies are prepaid, prepaid economies where you're paying up in cash or you're paying um, a little by little over time, but on a prepayment basis. So I think the way consumerism will happen in Africa will be very different just because it's a function of like behavioral economics, but the ingredients for um, a middle class to emerge are there. The nuance is that it's fragmented. That is very interesting because you brought up a point. I was asking about middle class and then you brought up an interesting point, which is that there is this, it, I guess it goes back to the Hans Rosling's way of uh, uh, putting uh, brackets on income where you have level one, level two, level three, and level four. Um, the real thing yeah. in a lot of Africa countries is moving from that level one to level two. Oh, uh, in terms yeah. of you know, going from not having access to clean water, not having um, uh, more than a dollar a day to having like $2 a day, having access to water, difficult still, but more um, and, and, and that kind of basic credit infrastructure. What are some other things yeah. that will, and that's, and that's never happened. It, it, we've never had the internet combining with that, um, that opening up of this, of that, of that market, you know, that had happened in the U S uh, but it happened uh, in a place that was not connected. And I wonder what your thoughts are on this opportunity that comes from this, uh, this thing that's never happened before, um, uh, of this mixing. Yeah, um, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I think like, you know, the, the immediate low hanging fruit, and I've seen examples of this already, have been around like making life easier for people who are doing business for the first time. Uh, I'll give you practical examples. There's a startup called Soko Watch, um, and they are basically doing um, stock um, optimization for informal retailers. So there's like literally millions of informal, I would call them like mom and pop shops, I guess that's the equivalent in the West, that you find all over urban and rural areas. Um, everywhere on the continent. And these are like responsible for a huge chunk of the business volume that actually takes place. Um, so before startups like Sokowatch came into the space, they would have to like order various um, goods um, and products from their various suppliers and they can't control when those suppliers will deliver, if they'll deliver at all. What Sokowatch does is that they act like an intermediary between large scale manufacturers and those informal retailers, aggregating the demand and um, from the economies of scale are able to offer better pricing and better delivery options for these informal retailers. So you no. Know, um, a woman goes to set up her shop at 6 a.m. in the morning with no stock. She can order from her feature phone, any phone, um, really. She can order the stock that she needs for the day, and then these guys deliver it within two hours, and then um, she can pay for it immediately, or she can pay for it at the end of the day. And you know, This really optimizes for their cash flow and helps them um, to build some sense of expendable income for the first time. And like, these are big opportunities. Soko is still relatively young, but I think they've raised... Um, $4.5 million um, in July, 2019. Another example is Tala. Um, Tala is a micro mobile money micro lender. Um, so similar concept where primarily the people who benefit the most from Tala loans are business people and they have cash flow issues. So Tala will like set up on your Android phone, look at a bunch of parameters and in two minutes they're able to offer you instant credit. Um, 
and they've been like wildly successful in 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 Kenya and Tanzania, I believe, um, especially serving these um, emerging um, users for the first time. Tala, for example, they they just raised uh, 110 million dollars from PayPal hmm. and a few other VCs um, in August of this year. So you know they're, they're not targeting to expand to India, and I think that that brings their total funding to. 200 plus million dollars. They're almost a unicorn, I guess. Um, but they validated that model in Kenya. Uh, I think that was their launch market. And they grew extremely quickly because of taking advantage of this um, emerging population class. Um, so I think, like, you know, those type of core services, um, cash flow management, insurance, um, the very basic stuff, that's where you can scale easily. There is quite a bit of risk and um, fragmented regulation makes it tough for you to um, experiment as quickly as you'd want to in certain spaces. Mm. And also some political interests of some actors in certain countries would make it very difficult for you to try and disrupt um, certain types of industries. So, you know, it's, it's a really tricky market. Um, you have to be prepared and you have to be patient. But ultimately, you know, the people who are Tala and Watch customers now in the next five, 10 years will be the people who are, you know, maybe buying their first computer online because they've gotten tired of using their phone and then they can afford a 200 to $300 device. So, yeah, I think it depends on where you want to play on that spectrum. Um, there is a middle class that you can serve in certain markets that's easier to access, but it's not easy to build a very defensible business there. Or you can go towards the bottom of the pyramid where there's a much wider population to be served, but the barriers to entry are significantly higher. And everyone is just making a trade-off about where they want to play on that spectrum. That's so interesting. Um, I want to go into the political thing more, but before we, before we do that, the political risk, the element you talked about, before we do that, I want to understand, because when you were describing that somebody raised a couple million dollars, um, where was that money coming from? So, you know, you mentioned the PayPal investing a lot of money, but you also made, mentioned a smaller seed stage. Was that money coming from, um, uh, where was that money coming from, do you think? Yeah, so I, I think in, in the case of SokoWatch, they, they have disclosed investors. I think they have 4DI Capital. That's a South African firm that led their seed. And um, there might be some Western players as well. From my experience, fundraising on the continent, um, there's not a lot of local capital available that's willing to take that type of risk. Um, you find that there's a ton of money um, in private equity and for traditional industries, mm. but there's not a lot of like VC or risk capital. So it's still a lot easier to raise for African entrepreneurs to raise from the Valley. And I think all of the, the, the success stories that like, uh, I pay attention to, um, have that, um, Valley funding, um, which is not, I don't think that's necessarily a good or bad thing. Um, it's a function of like, who are the people that you're working with and what are their intentions? So yeah, that is what it is. But, the Valley's um, support of the African ecosystem, I think, has been absolutely crucial. And I would go as far as saying that if that bridge then exists between Africa and Silicon Valley, maybe the ecosystem as we know it, they would not exist at all. Mm. You know? that, and well, and so the, the thing I was trying to, I'm, I'm trying to understand is essentially, I know that, uh, you know, software if you're doing a purely software play uh, and you're raising money from the Valley and then going to, um, and then targeting uh, emerging markets, then 
the the you can go way way further i i once i i, I moved to india uh in order to build a startup about uh six years ago um and we worked directly with the, uh, indian developers um and it was just like our our ability to to produce at a very low low cost was was very high um, and so there does seem to be some sort of arbitrage on the on the software play, but I guess we can go back to that political risk, and that seems to be the main challenge um, in Africa because it's not necessarily just software as well. You're also dealing with um, uh, uh, governments who might have different uh, incentives to to you know change things. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I agree with you on the, the software arbitrage opportunity. That's definitely there. And there's some upsides that are like um, inherent to operating in emerging markets. But then you, you, you have the downsides, which are the political risk and so on and so forth. So you find that like in many African countries, um, the people at the top in leadership um, have probably like related parties, friends and co um, who are essentially, I would say, handed um, the rights to run certain industries. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these businesses essentially thrive from um, there being a certain type of inefficiency. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it's like, okay, we need this to create employment. Like, mm -hmm. there's there so many people that you need to have this business to, to, to create employment. So when you introduce a technical solution that is actually more effect more efficient um, but like potentially you know displaces some people who would have been employed or hurts an industry that you know, would have otherwise existed then you find that the political will to back those type of initiatives is um, not very strong because you don't want to um, you, you don't want to misalign with these people. You as a leader are at the top with the power, but then you stand on top of keys, these keys that give you power, and you must align with those keys, otherwise you can no longer stay in power. So th that, that happens a lot. I'll give you an example. In, in Ethiopia, in Addis Ababa, it's not uncommon to see people um, whose jobs are just to sit in the lift and press the buttons for where you're going to go. Like that's all they do. This person will be sitting in the elevator every day. You go inside, you say, I'm going to eighth floor. They'll press eighth floor. And that's all they do. And Ethiopia has a population of over 100 million people. And when you see that happening in, in a country like that, you realize that like, okay, this is a function of, they need to do something about unemployment. So something is better than nothing. And when you're trying to introduce innovations in that type of market, I think you can see the extent to which you might face resistance because some of the problems that um, African countries are still dealing with are quite, um, I don't use the word trivial, but they're quite low level in nature. So it makes it very hard to, to win on merit alone. Say I have a more innovative, more efficient solution. Not, maybe that's not the problem they're optimizing for. So that's, that's a tricky thing. And then of course you have um, skewed interests. Some people don't want the system to work because they benefit from it being broken. So when you introduce a technology that, for example, increases transparency, then um, you may be making it difficult for um, some illicit money to flow in or out of that system and then um, people just shut you down. And I'm not going to get into specific examples of that, but if you speak to African entrepreneurs, like almost everyone has a story. Um, try and work with African governments. Um, you will very likely at some point 
be asked for a bribe or a kickback. I don't think it's specific to African governments. I think um, it happens globally, though maybe the flavor or um, the, the type of corruption that takes place in Africa is easier to identify and spot. So it comes out more exacerbated. But you know, this, these are just like realities of life that I've seen globally. Um, but I can only speak to the challenges that I have um, dealt with. So yeah, um, I'm trying to be very careful about what I say around that. Of course, that's 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 um, a pretty comprehensive overview. And 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 thank you very much for that. Uh, so it, it brings it back to this point, which you made in the original um, DM on Twitter, is that is that we are comparing you know places that have had different historical forces, but in the United States, that same thing happened uh, in you know in the in the 1850s, 1900s, 1950s, like there was massive corruption on the government and on the local level. Um, and it's something that kind of just as institutions strengthen, as the economy strengthens, these things essentially work themselves out according to my understanding. Yeah. Um, and so again, it's like applying this to, to what's going on in Africa, but there is this, just this interesting opportunity that's also happening because of the internet and because of all this stuff. Um, and it's so, it's so, uh, and, and you know, it, as you mentioned, it's happening in a lot of other places too. It's happening in India. I lived in Thailand for a long time. Like I, I had to give bribes. Uh, it's just the way it was. Like, uh, um, and and it's it's uh, it's 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 common to a lot of places. Do you do you think that there is a technology solution to corruption? Mm. Before I answer that. Um... You, you mentioned something about the like g- having to give bribes. Yeah. There's there's a little bit of nuance that I wanted to introduce to that argument because I've I've, I've observed that in like some African cultures there's um there's a tendency of gift giving. I would say it's actually mm-hmm. part of the culture and especially like in rural areas. So when I go back to Malawi and I go to where like my my grandparents are from, this is like in a rural area. I they will not let me leave without giving me something. <laughs> Like it has to be something, food or fruit or whatever, like it's part of the culture. And I think that has like, you know, that has extended to the way Africans do business in urban centers in Africa. Um, and, you know, you similar things in Japan, they have a gift giving culture. But then um, I've noticed that like when that happens, that natural culture of gift giving happens in Africa, people are very quick to point corruption or um, some sort of malpractice. So I think that's like a bit unfair. And, you know, I'm just mentioning it because you, you had raised that point and it came to mind. Yeah. Um, and I thought, I thought it was worth saying, but yeah. Um, so back to your original question. Yeah. That, is that, te- yeah, go for it. Go for it yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Is there a technology solution for corruption? No, uh, I don't think technology, really does anything and just augments like existing processes within real life. So what is needed is really like um, a, a cultural change. Um, we no longer need to tolerate like um, low ethics and low integrity because um, these African leaders, it's not like they're coming from somewhere else. They're coming from the same Africans. So if our leaders are corrupt, it's a signal that to some extent we ourselves as a society must be corrupt. So we need to start at the bottom. And I think it's a, it's a factor of like different things. The education system, for example, like I went to one of the best schools in Malawi, but I didn't learn anything about my own heritage, anything about my own culture, anything about my own principles. It's only now that um, I have the opportunity to sort of like, you know, discover more and learn about African history and why we are the way that we are. 
Um, I think education is a very big part of it. And then also putting together value systems. I don't know how value systems propagate across populations, but I think there, there can be certain structures that will be put in place. I've noticed that as time progresses, instances of corruption tend to decrease in intensity and frequency, which is a great pattern. Mm-hmm. And I think as more and more young leaders get into positions of leadership, um, having experienced firsthand the pain of what it's like when you have a corrupt system, um, you wouldn't want that for other people. And because we, this generation who are getting in for the first time, are not coming from this place of trauma and lack and anger at this colonial history. Like I didn't struggle growing up. I don't have, I don't have a grudge. I don't have a chip on my shoulder. So I have less of an incentive to harm others or to take more for myself. I feel less entitled. I think it's going to be a function of time um, more than anything else, but certain technological tools may help to accelerate um, the message. Um, you know, we've seen the power of what social media has done, for example, in the U.S. elections. And, you know, Facebook is offering free Facebook services all over the continent, has, has been doing so for a while. I don't think that anyone has, you know, really leveraged the power of social media to affect social change, whether positive or negative on the continent yet. But it remains to be seen when it happens, I, I believe inevitably. So I think in that sense, technology can, can be a tool to augment the strength of the message. Mm-hmm. But at the core, it's about us as a continent deciding who we're going to be. And it also brings to mind, I was just watching this, uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, his classes that he posted on YouTube, and it's, it's a class called The Map of Meaning. And he talks about this value creation uh, and essentially this value creation is a technology, but it's a very, very deep technology that is not what we traditionally ascribe to technology, which is that uh, it's a way that our brain, uh, uh, a way that our bodies are essentially um, socialized. Uh, and there are these deep stories that we have that are embedded in our culture, but in a place where that had been colonized and that, that, that place had been, basically the culture had been ripped, ripped out of it and the stories had been subjected. Well, is that true? Like, are there stories in Malawi that 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 maintained that made it through colonization? And I mean, so I, I'll set this up a little bit more. That this it's the myths and the stories and the symbolism and the images, all of these things that essentially um, are like are like memes that go into our heads and essentially develop. We develop our values based on this this sharing of these stories and stuff like that. What is the ro- role of that in Malawi? Yeah, so like in Malawi, in in rural parts of Malawi, that's still there, like a very big part of um, history and the native Malawian culture has been preserved. Um, But it's passed down from generation to generation via like word of mouth uh, more than anything else. So there's no documentation. So if you grow up in rural Malawi, you'll get to experience the real Malawi the way it is. Mm. But then the moment you move to urban areas, then you have a very westernized um, society that doesn't have its own heritage. So I come from a town called Blanta in Malawi. Blanta is named after a Scottish town um, that Blanta was discovered in quotes by um, uh, a Scottish missionary called David Livingstone. And that's the, the history of where I'm from begins. So the biggest roads in Blantyre are named after like colonial figures, Glyn Jones, um, Riles Hotel, like, you know, very few things mm. um, 
map down to this like you know this native history and it's it's really continent-wide like at a national level you can have like little pockets of national history but it's not well, well, well documented at an international level then i don't I think it's pretty much non-existent mm. because um to put it in, a, in in perspective i speak english it's it's probably the language that I speak best. I speak three other African languages, but English is the one that I speak best. When I moved to Kenya for the first time, like people are speaking English. And granted, it makes it easy to communicate, but it just goes to show the extent of cultural erasure that has taken place. Um, when I learned Kiswahili, which is the third African language that I speak, I started to draw a lot of parallels between words in Kiswahili and Chichewa, my native Malawian tongue. And um, I then learned that um, these languages are practically the same. A lot of words are shared. We all come from the Bantu um, type of people, but the language, the languages never spread, never gained mass adoption because of this colonial administration. Instead, in school, we were taught English instead of Kiswahili. So the, the written records that the urban population would probably gain the most insight from are then of course in mm -hmm. English. You find some local stuff about your country in local languages. It's super hard to find. It's probably not online. You have to go to an, like an old library. So it doesn't propagate as much, especially because people, the vast majority of people who are getting information about the world for the first time are getting it electronically. So there's like a massive gap in terms of digitizing our history and making it available across languages, across barriers. And you know, that's something that I think will take place naturally over the next 10, 20 years. But yeah, um, a lot of our own continental heritage has been whitewashed and there's no other way of putting it. And that, and that's a key point because language is the way that these stories and myths are transported. And so because language, yeah, that's the transport layer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so English is your, is your, um, uh, the best language that you have. So you, you almost have more, it's like a more of a magnet towards these concepts and, um, stories and myths of English, of England and of, of, yeah. North um which is really interesting um and so i know you know I, I don't know that much about malawian um history in the and particularly pre-colonial malawian history but uh, i know that in india there was an interesting thing that happened uh, uh, uh with british colonization in, in india had this renaissance for pre-british colonial uh, religion and other things um, that had also had a lot of kind of whitewashing, as you say, and um, they kind of rediscovered it, but then in that rediscovery also changed it and made what we now know of yoga. <laughs> and so yoga is not yeah. like yoga is not a 2000 year old unbroken tradition. I mean, there, there are some there the very, 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 very rare. Um, but, uh, but it's actually a product of globalization, the yoga that you can go to in a studio is yoga, uh, in Malawi. Do people practice yoga in, in the big cities? Yeah. But as a very small subset of yeah. the sophisticated population in like, um, urban areas, 
um, the vast majority of the population is either Muslim or Christian. Mm. And then there are like indigenous religions as well that are practiced in small um, communities. I think just because they, they don't have like the mechanisms to scale, I would say. Um, I think it's normal and natural for religions to evolve, to gel with the circumstances of the current time. So the underlying like fundamental principles of, of yoga, for example, as a manifestation of where it came from are very likely the same, but um, maybe the practices and actual activities have been augmented to be compatible with what life is like today. And I see this pattern across like a wide number of societal issues, not just religion, politics, education, and co. Um, I think like from my observation, it, maybe it's a system for how these things um, can get to work. So I don't, I don't pay too much mind to the actual activities or what's going on, but mm-hmm. very much the underlying concept and the intent behind the action. And when you look at it from that perspective, um, I think, yeah, with, with the yoga example, the underlying principles are the same around meditation, peace, a sense of, um, did yoga evolve from like Buddhism? How, where, did, where did it come from? Now I'm curious. Yeah, there was a, it was an interplay. So, so um, I mean, you have, you have like Bhagavad Gita was, was written before Buddhism happened. Um, uh, the Vedas were, were, were these scriptures that happened all before Buddhism. So in, in Hinduism itself is a, is a, is a, is a colonial conception. Hinduism didn't exist as one, this idea that you have one formal religion, uh, did not exist in India. India was a, was a collection of like lots and lots and lots of different, um, uh, spiritual traditions, re- religious traditions, and then under the British was then formalized into Hinduism and Buddhism had a similar thing, although Buddhism also spread. But Buddhism came, Buddha, the Buddha was Hindu or what, what was, was a, uh, was a Advaita Vedanta, was he Advaita Vedanta? He was uh, definitely seeped in the culture of the Vedas, uh, which were these very, very early yeah. scriptures. Uh, and then he ha- essentially had an innovation or a insight uh, into the nature of suffering and realize that none of the previous Vedas, none of the rituals that the Vedas kind of prescribed will lead you to the end of suffering. Um, and then, he, and then yeah. he, and he, and he, he was very widely practiced in all of those things, but he said none of them worked uh, to really get to the core of suffering and remove yourself from suffering. So he, uh, he, he started, went on his own and, and then he sat under a tree and was like, okay, I'm going to end suffering. I'm not going to get up unless I, end, until I end suffering. Uh, and then he did that yeah. and then he essentially started spreading that. Um, and then it made its way both to, uh, uh, to Thailand and well, first to Sri Lanka and then to Thailand and then up into China, uh, and then also up into Tibet and then through to China as well. Um, uh, yeah. and so, so there it's, they've, they've, they're very, very closely aligned. And another interesting fact is that it's not only Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta, uh, the Hindu tradition, there's also Jainism. There's also a bunch of, mm really deep philosophical and spiritual traditions that all happened around the time of, um, of, of the Buddha. So it was like the, and it actually, it also coincides with the time of, of, uh, Plato of, of Greek, uh, uh, mathematical inquiry. Um, so it was a, it was almost a, a, a worldwide thing happening, um, uh, all around the same time, which is really interesting. Yeah, that, that's a, a bit of light that helps me understand. I think I'm going to do a bit more research into that. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, 
it seems that there are there are like patterns in society that r- repeat manifest mm. with different like slight alterations um and how and when and what is always like a factor of what the the inputs were mm. uh, but yeah the patterns are the same and that's a really good point because I, I i mean i've i had never consciously thought about that of essentially that yoga and meditation the practices are adapted and changed which they should be to the requirements of the time but the overarching fundamental backdrop or the substrate to it always remains the same and has and was there before yoga uh too uh, yeah yeah that's really yeah, that's super interesting yeah well, this has been a really cool discussion. And so for the last five minutes, I want to, you know, I usually try to find a expertise uh, that, that someone has. And we've been talking about your expertise. So you've already given a lot of that, a lot, a lot of expertise, but maybe we could talk about actual like business development. Um, if you do business development among with companies, what can you talk more about your role? Yeah, cool. So I'm currently head of global business development and strategy at Hover Developer Services. Um, we are trying to reimagine traditional mobile network infrastructure for software developers. Um, I, I don't want to get too much into the technical details, but I would love to like leave some links to resources. Basically, we are making it easier for software developers to um, extend the functionality of mobile money. Mobile money is a massive thing um, all across the continent. We Sub-Saharan Africa accounts for almost 50% of all mobile money activity globally. Um, and Southeast Asia and other regions are not starting to catch up, but like it's a massive thing that has got more um, prevalence and ubiquity than card-based technology. So if you're trying to do something with consumer fintech for um, emerging uh, the emerging segment of the population as well as the middle class, um, mobile money is like the one tool that you can use to, you know, actually reach all these people at once. And that's what we're building out at Hover. Um, before I joined Hover, I was at a startup called Africa's Talking. Um, we essentially built Twilio for Africa. Um, pretty interesting business. Uh, I was there for three years. Um, we've managed to grow something really special there with the presence um, touching about 18 African countries. We did an $8.6 million Series A. Um, so it was a really fantastic experience. My, my expertise is always around mobile and thinking about mobile for the future. It's something that I'm super passionate about. I got into phones when I was like really young and I noticed the, um, the possibilities at a really early age and I just kind of like ran with it. And I've always been exploring what's doable. Um, interestingly enough, uh, I, I blogged recently about like, um, the stage where we are in Africa as a mobile money ecosystem and where we're going. Um, and that article has, is now like um, being republished in a number of places, including Quartz Africa. I'll send you a link to that. Mm. Maybe it could be an interesting resource to check out. It's also like a, a great primer for someone who doesn't have a lot of context on the continent to know what's going on and where the um, opportunities are. So, yeah. Um, I'm also pretty well integrated with various ecosystems across countries. Um, I know a lot of founders, I know a lot of VCs, accelerators, pretty much anyone you want to get connected to. And before I did AT and Hover, I was I had founded my own startups and they all failed because of um, various reasons. But one thing that I really wish I had that I didn't have was like a network access to certain people. Um, could have like you know solved my problem so i'm trying to be the ecosystem actor that i wish i had 
And what that means for me in practice is that like, I am always happy to take any questions for anyone who's trying to get like involved in the ecosystem. Founders, especially like um, my Twitter DMs are always open for any founder asking any question, wanting any help or any introduction to anyone who can move the needle for them because um, we need to replicate this paid forward culture that made Silicon Valley the way it is. And it, it boils down to really like humanity. How do we treat each other? Um, and I'm happy to say that that's already taking place with the African ecosystem. It's actually like one of the most open, one of the most easy to get into. People are willing to help. Um, and yeah, I just want to like be a part of pushing that narrative and pushing that culture. So those are the two areas. Anything around mobile, if you want to know anything about mobile in Africa, I, I'm pretty well qualified um, technically and from a business point of view. And then mobile money is something that I'm really excited about. We're building the tools at Hover for you to integrate pretty much any mobile money solution that uses an, an interface called USSD. Um, it's a network standard that's very ubiquitous for a lot of the mobile money solutions here. So yeah, um, I'm always, I always engage on Twitter. So that's where I spend quite a bit of my daily time. I find it to be a very um, great place to just figure out, have your ear on the ground, what's going on in the ecosystem and get access to certain people that you can't meet anywhere else. Um, and I, I always engage with anyone on any questions uh, as much as possible. I try not to ignore a single at. So, yeah. That's cool. And uh, what, what, where are you on Twitter? Um, at Wiza J. So mm-hmm. that, that's across all social medias. Wiza, W-I-Z-A-J. So W-I-Z-A-J. Right. Yeah, yeah, Z, American pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so actually I wanted to ask this one question because from that I got, I got what your expertise is uh, and uh, you might have already answered it, but you do a lot of business across borders uh, and across yeah. like continents. And, uh, and so what is the most important thing to know when uh, doing business across borders and communication across borders? That you're not at home. So what this means is <laughs> you really need to like be sensitive to the, the realities of what's going on in that country and what are people's attitudes perceived or actual towards foreigners. And like a heuristic that I use before I say something to somebody for the first time in a new country is like, how are, what are all the different ways in, this, in, in which this could be interpreted wrong? Um, and, you know, in some countries like Ethiopia, that's a very big thing. Um, one does not simply walk into Ethiopia. Ethiopia is the only country that was not colonized. The Italians tried and failed. And you see why even today when you go there, um, there's a very strong sense of national identity. There's a very strong sense of distrust towards foreigners, um, highly relational market. You need to go in, spend time um, and, you know, like, you need to build a genuine, authentic connection with somebody in Ethiopia before you can do business with them. And then you need to work with that person to do business in Ethiopia because you can't do any business in Ethiopia if you don't speak Amharic, the language. So, you know, these are things that you, you learn um, when, you, when, you, when you get your feet wet. But the rule of thumb for me is, like, always remember, like, I'm not at home. So I need to learn what's, what's going on and act accordingly. That's been really useful for me. That is a very, very good point. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a huge pleasure, and I hope we can do many more of these interviews. Thank you, Stuart. Really appreciate it. Um, looking forward to engaging, and yeah, we'll see where this goes. Cool.
I hope you enjoyed this episode. Just want to let you know I'm making some changes to my daily release schedule. I am doing this on my own, so it does it is hard to publish all the episodes I'm doing. My main love for this is really in in figuring out what's going on around the world, particularly this this uh, rise in global innovation. Uh, so I'm doing my best to publish all the episodes I've done. Uh, I have a episode schedule of Monday and Friday at least. I'm starting to add a Wednesday, and sometimes I'll actually add more throughout the week as well. So if you're seeing a lot of content out there downloaded straight to your phone, that's the reason. Hopefully you're enjoying it. Don't expect you to listen to all of it. Uh, what I'm trying to do is get something out there that people, if they do enjoy the topics, and I'm trying to label those on iTunes better of, of how to... Um, how to uh, what what is of interest to anybody in the, in this episode? What you might like out of it, and so yeah, uh, if you did find it a value, please find us on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom uh, and leaving a five star review, or go ahead and subscribing. And thank you very much. Have a great day.